0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales, week two of Nikolai Gogol. Uh, We are going to have The Cloak, we are going to have Memoirs of a Madman, we're going to have The Nose, we are going to have some other stuff in there. We're going to have, let's see, what's that other one? I gotta scan through my notes here. Uh, uh, Inspector General, we're going to break that up throughout the week, so... You're going to hear a uh, play of Inspector General throughout the week. And you know what? None of this could be possible without our friends over at BunnySlippers.com. Get yourself some Highland Cow slippers. They are... I'm recording my living room right now. Actually, technically, I think I'm in the kitchen. But I'm on linoleum floors, and my feet are nice and warm. Why? Because I've got some woolly, woolly Highland Cow slippers. And oh man, do they keep my feet warm. And I look cool because I'm wearing my Bad News Bears three-quarter length sleeve because it's kind of chilly in here. You know, not not cold enough that I need to put a sweater on, but then I've got a three-quarter length sleeve shirt on and a hoodie. Yeah, I've got a hoodie on. I've got a Black Clock Audio Tales hoodie on from our shop over at PGTTCM.com. So... You know, found item clothing, Black Clock Audio Tales, PGTTCM.com. Shop at the places that support us, and support us by shopping at our store. If you want to support us, you can go to Facebook, you can go to Twitter, you can go to Instagram, you can go to any place that you find podcasts and rate and review us. Let people know, because... Honestly, that helps. And you know what? I've had other people pretty much vandalize <laughs> vandalize uh, my uh, iTunes because they had problems with me that were totally unrelated to the podcast. Because I didn't want to review a book or because I, uh, like an asshole, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a jerk, uh, posted some email that was like, them trying to be cool and being like how I should have them on my show and it's like, that's not what kind of podcast this is. I don't just have writers who write fiction and horror come on the show, but hey, if you know stuff if you look at our schedule and you see something that you want to talk about contact me on Facebook or Instagram and I'll get you on the show and you know what? That's the best way to find us and help out the show by going to paypal.me pgttcm here we go with some gogol all right
1: the cloak by nikolai gogol read by bob Newfeld. part one in the department of but it is better not to mention the department the touchiest things in the world are departments regiments courts of justice in a word, all branches of public service. Each individual nowadays thinks all society insulted in his person. Quite recently, a complaint was received from a district chief of police, in which he plainly demonstrated that all the imperial institutions were going to the dogs, and that the Tsar's sacred name was being taken in vain, and in proof, He appended to the complaint a romance, in which the district chief of police is made to appear about once in every ten pages, and, sometimes, in a downright drunken condition. Therefore, in order to avoid all unpleasantness, it will be better to designate the department in question as a certain department. So, in a certain department there was a certain official, not a very notable one, it must be allowed short of stature, somewhat pockmarked, red-haired, and mole-eyed, with a bald forehead, wrinkled cheeks, and a complexion of the kind known as sanguine. The St. Petersburg climate was responsible for this. As for his official rank, with us Russians the rank comes first, he was what is called a perpetual titular counsellor, over which, as is well known, some writers make merry and crack their jokes, obeying the praiseworthy custom of attacking those who cannot bite back. His family name was Bashmachkin. The name is evidently derived from Bashmak, Shoe, but when, at what time, and in what manner is not known. His father and grandfather, and all the Bashmachkins, always wore boots, which were resold two or three times a year. His name was Akaki Akakievich. It may strike the reader as rather singular and far-fetched, but he may rest assured that it was by no means far-fetched, and that the circumstances were such that it would have been impossible to give him any other. This was how it came about. Akaki Akhajevich was born, if my memory fails me not, in the evening on the 23rd of March. His mother, the wife of a government official and a very fine woman, made all due arrangements for having the child baptized. She was lying on the bed opposite the door. On her right stood the godfather, Ivan Ivanovich Iroshkin, a most estimable man, who served as the head clerk of the senate, and the godmother, Arina Semyonovna Bilobrinchkova, the wife of an officer of the quarter and a woman of rare virtues. They offered the mother her choice of three Bokia, Sosia, or that the child should be called after the martyr Kozdazat. No, said the good woman, all those names are poor. In order to please her, they opened the calendar at another place. Three more names appeared Trifili, Dula, Varakasi. This is awful, said the old woman. What names? I truly never heard the like. I might have put up with Varadat or Varuk, but not Trifili and Varakasi. They turned to another page, and found Pavsikaki and Vaktisi. Now I see, said the old woman, that it is plainly fate, and since such is the case, it will be better to name him after his father. His father's name was Akaki, so let his son's name be Akaki too. In this manner he became Akaki Akakiyevich. They christened the child, whereat he wept and made a grimace, as though he foresaw that he was to be a titular counsellor. In this manner did it all come about. We have mentioned it in order that the reader might see for himself that it was a case of necessity, and that it was utterly impossible to give him any other name. When and how he entered the department, and who appointed him, no one could remember. However much the directors and chiefs of all kinds were changed, He was always to be seen in the same place, the same attitude, the same occupation, always the letter-copying clerk, so that it was afterwards affirmed that he had been born in uniform with a bald head. No respect was shown him in the department. The porter not only did not rise from his seat when he passed, but never even glanced at him, any more than if a fly had flown through the reception-room." His superiors treated him in coolly despotic fashion. Some insignificant assistant to the head clerk would thrust a paper under his nose without so much as saying, copy, or here's an interesting little case, or anything else agreeable, as is customary amongst well-bred officials. And he took it, looking only at the paper, and not observing who handed it to him, or whether he had the right to do so, simply took it, and set about copying it. The young officials laughed at and made fun of him, so far as their official wit permitted. Told in his presence various stories concocted about him, and about his landlady, an old woman of seventy. Declared that she beat him, asked when the wedding was to be, and strew bits of paper over his head, calling them snow. But Akaki Akakievich answered not a word, any more than if there had been no one there besides himself. It even had no effect upon his work. Amid all these annoyances, he never made a single mistake in a letter. But if the joking became wholly unbearable, as when they jogged his head and prevented his attending to his work, he would exclaim, "'Leave me alone! Why do you insult me?' And there was something strange in the words and the voice in which they were uttered. There was in it something which moved to pity.' so much so, that one young man, a newcomer, who, taking pattern by the others, had permitted himself to make sport of a khaki, suddenly stopped short, as though all about him had undergone a transformation, and presented itself in a different aspect. Some unseen force repelled him from the comrades whose acquaintance he had made on the supposition that they were decent well-bred men. Long afterwards, in his gayest moments, there recurred to his mind the little official with a bald forehead, with his heart-rending words, Leave me alone! Why do you insult me? In these moving words other words resounded, I am thy brother. And the young man covered his face with his hand, and many a time afterwards, in the course of his life, shuddered at seeing how much inhumanity there is in man, how much savage coarseness is concealed beneath refined, cultured, worldly refinement, and even—oh God—in that man whom the world acknowledges as honourable and upright. It would be difficult to find another man who lived so entirely for his duties. It is not enough to say that Akaki laboured with zeal. No, he laboured with love. In his copying, he found a varied and agreeable employment. Enjoyment was written on his face. Some letters were even favourites with him, and when he encountered these, he smiled, winked, and worked with his lips, till it seemed as though each letter might be read in his face, as his pen traced it. If his pay had been in proportion to his zeal, he would, perhaps, to his great surprise, have been made even a councillor of state. But he worked, as his companions the wits put it, like a horse in a mill. However, it would be untrue to say that no attention was paid to him. One director, being a kindly man and desirous of rewarding him for his long service, ordered him to be given something more important than mere copying. So he was ordered to make a report of an already concluded affair to another department the duty consisting simply in changing the heading and altering a few words from the first to the third person. This caused him so much toil that he broke into a perspiration, rubbed his forehead, and finally said, "'No, give me rather something to copy.' After that they let him copy on forever. Outside this copying it appeared that nothing existed for him he gave no thought to his clothes. His uniform was not green, but a sort of rusty mule colour. The collar was low, so that his neck, in spite of the fact that it was not long, seemed inordinately so as it emerged from it, like the necks of the plaster cats which pedlars carry about on their heads. And something was always sticking to his uniform, either a bit of hay or some trifle. Moreover, He had a peculiar knack, as he walked along the street, of arriving beneath a window just as all sorts of rubbish was being flung out of it. Hence, he always bore about on his hat scraps of melon rinds and other such articles. Never once in his life did he give heed to what was going on every day to the street. While it was well known that his young brother officials trained the range of their glances, till they could see when any one's trouser-straps came undone upon the opposite sidewalk, which always brought a malicious smile to their faces. But Akaki Akakiyevich saw in all things the clean, even strokes of his written lines, and only when a horse thrust his nose from some unknown quarter over his shoulder, and sent a whole gust of wind down his neck from his nostrils, did he observe that he was not in the middle of a line, but in the middle of the street." On reaching home, he sat down at once at the table, sipped his cabbage soup up quickly, and swallowed a bit of beef with onions, never noticing their taste, and gulping down everything with flies and anything else which the Lord happened to send at the moment. When he saw that his stomach was beginning to swell, he rose from the table and copied papers which he had brought home. If there happened to be none, he took copies for himself, for his own gratification, especially if the document was noteworthy not on account of its style, but of its being addressed to some distinguished person. Even at the hour when the grey St. Petersburg sky had quite disappeared, and all the official world had eaten or dined, each as he could, in accordance with the salary he received and his own fancy, when all were resting from the department jar of pens, running to and fro, for their own or other people's indispensable occupations, and from all the work that an uneasy man makes willingly for himself, rather than what is necessary. When officials hasten to dedicate to pleasure the time which is left to them, one bolder than the rest, going to the theatre, another into the street looking under the bonnets, another wasting his evening in compliments to some pretty girl, the star of a small official circle, another, and this is the common case of all, visiting his comrades on the third or fourth floor, in two small rooms with an anteroom or kitchen, and some pretensions to fashion, such as a lamp or some other trifle which has cost many a sacrifice of dinner or pleasure-trip. In a word, at that hour when all officials disperse among the contracted quarters of their friends to play whist, as they sip their tea from glasses with a copeck's worth of sugar, smoke long pipes, Relate at times some bits of gossip which a Russian man can never, under any circumstances, refrain from, and when there is nothing else to talk of, repeat eternal anecdotes about the commandant to whom they had sent word that the tails of the horses on the Falconet Monument had been cut off, when all strive to divert themselves, Akaki Akakievich indulged in no kind of diversion. No one could even say that they had seen him at any kind of evening party. Having written to his heart's content, he lay down to sleep, smiling at the thought of the coming day, of what God might send him to copy on the morrow. Thus flowed on the peaceful life of the man, who, with a salary of four hundred roubles, understood how to be content with his lot and thus it would have continued to flow on, perhaps, to extreme old age, were it not that there are various ills strewn along the path of life for titular counsellors, as well as for private, actual, court, and every other species of counsellor, even to those who never give any advice or take any themselves. There exists in St. Petersburg a powerful foe of all who receive a salary of four hundred rubles a year, or thereabouts. This foe is no other than the northern cold, although it is said to be very healthy. At nine o'clock in the morning, at the very hour when the streets are filled with men bound for the various official departments, it begins to bestow such powerful and piercing nips on all noses impartially, that the poor officials really do not know what to do with them. At an hour, when the foreheads of even those who occupy exalted positions ache with the cold, and tears start to their eyes, the poor titular counsellors are sometimes quite unprotected. Their only salvation lies in traversing as quickly as possible, in their thin little cloaks, five or six streets, and then warming their feet in the porter's room, and so thawing all their talents and qualifications for official service, which had become frozen on the way. Akaki Akakiyevich had felt for some time that his back and shoulders were paining with peculiar poignancy, in spite of the fact that he tried to traverse the distance with all possible speed. He began finally to wonder whether the fault did not lie in his cloak. He examined it thoroughly at home, and discovered that in two places, namely on the back and shoulders, it had become thin as gauze. The cloth was worn to such a degree that he could see through it, and the lining had fallen into pieces. You must know that Akaki Akakiyevich's cloak served as an object of ridicule to the officials. They even refused it the noble name of cloak, and called it a cape. In fact, it was of singular make, its color diminishing year by year to serve to patch its other parts. The patching did not exhibit great skill on the part of the tailor— and was, in fact, baggy and ugly. Seeing how the matter stood, Akaki Akakievich decided that it would be necessary to take the cloak to Petrovitch, the tailor, who lived somewhere on the fourth floor up a dark staircase, and who, in spite of his having but one eye and pockmarks all over his face, busied himself with considerable success in repairing the trousers and coats of officials and others. That is to say, when he was sober and not nursing— some other scheme in his head. It is not necessary to say much about this tailor, but as it is the custom to have the character of each personage in a novel clearly defined, there is no help for it. So here is Petrovich the tailor. At first he was called Grigory and was some gentleman's serf. He commenced calling himself Petrovich from the time when he received his free papers, and further began to drink heavily on all holidays, at first on the great ones, and then on all church festivals without discrimination, wherever a cross stood in the calendar. On this point he was faithful to ancestral custom, and when quarrelling with his wife, he called her a low female and a German. As we have mentioned his wife, it will be necessary to say a word or two about her. Unfortunately, little is known of her, beyond the fact that Petrovich had a wife, who wore a cap and a dress, but could not lay claim to beauty. At least, no one but the soldiers of the guard even looked under her cap when they met her. Ascending the staircase which led to Petrovich's room, which staircase was all soaked with dishwater and reeked with the smell of spirits which affects the eyes, and is an inevitable adjunct to all dark stairways in St. Petersburg houses. Ascending the stairs, Akaki Akakiyevich pondered how much Petrovich would ask, and mentally resolved not to give more than two roubles. The door was open, for the mistress, in cooking some fish, had raised such a smoke in the kitchen that not even the beetles were visible. Akaki Akakiyevich passed through the kitchen unperceived, even by the housewife, and at length reached a room where he beheld Petrovich seated on a large unpainted table, with his legs tucked under him like a Turkish pasha. His feet were bare, after the fashion of tailors as they sit at work, and the first thing which caught the eye was his thumb, with a deformed nail thick and strong as a turtle's shell. About Petrovich's neck hung a skein of silk and thread, and upon his knees lay some old garment." He had been trying unsuccessfully for three minutes to thread his needle, and was enraged at the darkness and even at the thread, growling in a low voice, It won't go through, the barbarian. You pricked me, you rascal. Akaki Akakievich was vexed at arriving at the precise moment when Petrovich was angry. He liked to order something of Petrovich when he was a little downhearted, or, as his wife expressed it, when he had settled himself with Brandy, the one-eyed devil. Under such circumstances, Petrovitch generally came down in his price very readily, and even bowed in return thanks. Afterwards, to be sure, his wife would come complaining that her husband had been drunk, and so had fixed the price too low. But if only a ten-kopeck piece were added, then the matter would be settled." but now it appeared that Petrovitch was in a sober condition, and therefore rough, taciturn, and inclined to demand Satan only knows what price. Akaki Akakievich felt this, and would gladly have beat a retreat, but he was in for it. Petrovitch screwed up his one eye very intently at him, and Akaki Akakievich involuntarily said, "'How do you do, Petrovich?' I wish you a good morning, sir," said Petrovich, squinting at Akaki Akakievich's hands to see what sort of booty he had brought. "I, I, uh, uh, I, to you, Petrovich, this. It must be known that Akaki Akakievich expressed himself chiefly by prepositions, adverbs, and scraps of phrases which had no meaning whatever. If the matter was a very difficult one." he had a habit of never completing his sentences, so that frequently, having begun a phrase with the words, "'This, in fact, is quite—' he forgot to go on, thinking he had already finished. "'What is it?' asked Petrovich, and with his one eye scanned Akaki Akakievich's whole uniform, from the collar down to the cuffs, the back, the tails, the buttonholes, all of which were well known to him, since they were his own handiwork.' "'Such is the habit of tailors. "'It is the first thing they do on meeting one. "'But I... here... this... Petrovich... a cloak... a cloth... "'Here, here, you see... everywhere... in different places... it 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 is quite strong. "'It is a little dusty, and looks old, but it is new. "'Only here, in one place, it is a little... "'On the back, and here on one of the shoulders. It is a little worn, yes. Here on this shoulder it is a little. Do you see? That is all. And a little work.' Petrovitch took the cloak, spread it out, to begin with, on the table, looked at it hard, shook his head, reached out his hand to the window sill for his snuff-box, adorned with the portrait of some general— though what general is unknown, for the place where the face should have been had been rubbed through by the finger, and a square bit of paper had been pasted over it. Having taken a pinch of snuff, Petrovitch held up the cloak and inspected it against the light, and again shook his head. Then he turned it, blinding upwards, and shook his head once more. After which he again lifted the general adorned lid with its bit of pasted paper, and having stuffed his nose with snuff, closed and put away the snuff-box, and said, finally, No, it is impossible to mend it. It is a wretched garment. Akaki Akakievich's heart sank at these words. Why is it impossible, Petrovitch?" he said, almost in the pleading voice of a child. All that ails it is that it is worn on the shoulders— "'You must have some pieces yes patches could be found. Patches are easily found,' said Petrovitch. "'But there's nothing to sew them to. The thing is completely rotten. If you put a needle to it, see, it will give way.' "'Let it give way, and and you can put another patch at once.' "'But there is nothing to put the patches on to. There's no use in strengthening it. It is too far gone.' It's lucky that it's cloth, for if the wind were to blow, it would fly away. Well, strengthen it again. How this? In fact— No, said Petrovich decisively. There is nothing to be done with it. It's a thoroughly bad job. You'd better, when the cold winter weather comes on, make yourself some gaiters out of it, because stockings are not warm.' The Germans invented them in order to make more money. Petrovich loved on all occasions to have a fling at the Germans. But it is plain. You must have a new cloak. At the word new, all grew dark before Akaki Akakievich's eyes, and everything in the room began to whirl round. The only thing he saw clearly was the general with the paper face on the lid of Petrovich's snuff-box. A new one? said he, as if still in a dream. Why, I, I have no money for that. Yes, a new one, said Petrovitch, with barbarous composure. Well, if it came to a new one, how it. Uh, you mean, how much would it cost? Yes. Well, you would have to lay out a hundred and fifty or more, said Petrovitch, and pursed up his lips significantly. He liked to produce powerful effects, liked to stun utterly and suddenly, and then to glance sideways to see what face the stunned person would put on the matter. "'A hundred and fifty rubles for a cloak,' shrieked poor Akaki Akakievich, perhaps for the first time in his life, for his voice had always been distinguished by softness. "'Yes, sir,' said Petrovich, "'for any kind of cloak.' "'If you have a marten fur on the collar, or a silk-lined hood, it will mount up to two hundred. Petrovitch, "'Petrovich, please,' said Akaki Akakievich in a beseeching tone, not hearing and not trying to hear Petrovitch's words, and disregarding all his effects, s- "'some repairs in order that it may wear yet a little longer.' "'No, it would only be a waste of time and money,' said Petrovich.' and Akaki Akakievich went away after these words, utterly discouraged. But Petrovich stood for some time after his departure, with significantly compressed lips, and without betaking himself to his work, satisfied that he would not be dropped, and an artistic tailor employed. Akaki Akakievich went out into the streets, as if in a dream. Such an affair, he said to himself, I did not think it had come to— and then, after a pause, he added, "'Well, so it is. See what it has come to at last, and I never imagined that it was so.' Then followed a long silence, after which he exclaimed, "'Well, so it is. See what already. Nothing unexpected that it it, it would be nothing. What a strange circumstance!' so saying, instead of going home, he went in exactly the opposite direction without suspecting it. On the way a chimney-sweep bumped up against him and blackened his shoulder, and a whole hat full of rubbish landed on him from the top of a house which was building. He did not notice it, and only when he ran against a watchman, who, having planted his halbert beside him, was shaking some snuff from his box into his horny hand, did he recover himself a little, and that because the watchman said— Why are you poking yourself into a man's very face? Haven't you got the pavement? This caused him to look about him and turn towards home. There only he finally began to collect his thoughts, and to survey his position in its clear and actual light, and to argue with himself sensibly and frankly, as with a reasonable friend with whom one can discuss private and personal matters. No, said Akaki Akakievich. It is impossible to reason with Petrovich now. He is that—evidently his wife has been beating him. I'd better go to him on Sunday morning. After Saturday night he will be a little cross-eyed and sleepy, for he will want to get drunk, and his wife won't give him any money, and at such a time a ten-kopeck piece in his hand will— he will become more fit to reason with, and and then the cloak, and and that. Thus argued Akaki Akakievich with himself, regained his courage, and waited until the next Sunday, when seeing from afar that Petrovitch's wife had left the house, he went straight to him. Petrovich's eye was indeed very much askew after Saturday. His head drooped, and he was very sleepy. But for all that, as soon as he knew what it was a question of, it seemed as though Satan jogged his memory. "'Impossible,' said he, "Please to order a new one. Thereupon Akaki Akakievich handed over the ten-kopeck piece. "'Thank you, sir. I will drink your good health,' said Petrovitch. "'But as for the cloak, don't trouble yourself about it. It is good for nothing.' I will make you a capital new one, so let us settle about it now. Akaki Akakievich was still mending it, but Petrovitch would not hear of it, and said, I shall certainly have to make you a new one, and you may depend upon it that I shall do my best. It may even be, as the fashion goes, that the collar can be fastened by silver hooks under a flap, then Akaki Akakievich saw that it was impossible to get along without a new cloak, and his spirit sank utterly. How, in fact, was it to be done? Where was the money to come from? He must have some new trousers, and, and pay a debt of long-standing to the shoemaker for putting new tops to his old boots, and he must order three shirts from the seamstress, and a couple of pieces of linen. In short, all his money must be spent." and even if the director should be so kind as to order him to receive forty-five or even fifty roubles instead of forty, it would be a mere nothing, a mere drop in the ocean, towards the funds necessary for a cloak. Although he knew that Petrovich was often wrong-headed enough to blurt out some outrageous price, so that even his own wife could not refrain from exclaiming, "'Have you lost your senses, you fool?' At one time he would not work at any price." and now it was quite likely that he had named a higher sum than the cloak would cost. But although he knew that Petrovitch would undertake to make a cloak for eighty roubles, still, where was he to get the eighty rubles from? He might possibly manage half. Yes, half might be procured, but where was the other half to come from? But the reader must first be told where the first half came from. Akaki Akakiyevich had a habit of putting, for every ruble he spent, a groschen into a small box, fastened with lock and key, and with a slit in the top for the reception of money. At the end of every half-year he counted over the heap of coppers and changed it for silver. This he had done for a long time, and in the course of years the sum had mounted up to over forty rubles. Thus he had one half on hand. But where was he to find the other half? where was he to get another forty rubles from? Akaki Akakievich thought and thought, and decided that it would be necessary to curtail his ordinary expenses, for the space of one year at least, to dispense with tea in the evening, to burn no candles, and, if there was anything which he must do, to go into his landlady's room and work by her light. When he went into the street, he must walk as lightly as he could, and cautiously, upon the stones, almost upon tiptoe, in order not to wear his heels down in too short a time. He must give the laundress as little to wash as possible, and, in order not to wear out his clothes, he must take them off as soon as he got home, and wear only his cotton dressing-gown, which had been long and carefully saved. To tell the truth, it was a little hard for him, at first, to accustom himself to these deprivations— but he got used to them at length, after a fashion, and all went smoothly. He even got used to being hungry in the evening, but he made up for it by treating himself, so to say, in spirit, by bearing ever in mind the idea of his future cloak. From that time forth his existence seemed to become in some way fuller, as if he were married, or as if some other man lived in him, as if, in fact, he were not alone, and some pleasant friend had consented to travel along life's path with him, the friend being no other than the cloak, with thick wadding and a strong lining, incapable of wearing out. He became more lively, and even his character grew firmer, like that of a man who has made up his mind and set himself a goal. From his face and gait, doubt and indecision, all hesitating and wavering, disappeared of themselves, fire gleamed in his eyes, and occasionally the boldest and most daring ideas flitted through his mind. Why not, for instance, have martin fur on the collar? The thought of this almost made him absent-minded. Once, in copying a letter, he nearly made a mistake, so that he exclaimed almost aloud, Oook! and crossed himself. Once, in the course of every month, he had a conference with Petrovich on the subject of the cloak where it would be better to buy the cloth, and the colour, and the price. He always returned home satisfied, though troubled, reflecting that the time would come at last when it could all be bought, and then the cloak made. The affair progressed more briskly than he had expected. Far beyond all his hopes, the director awarded neither forty nor forty-five roubles for Akaki Akakievich's share, but sixty— Whether he suspected that Akaki Akakiyevich needed a cloak, or whether it was merely chance, at all events, twenty extra roubles were by this means provided. This circumstance hastened matters. Two or three months more of hunger, and Akaki Akakiyevich had accumulated about eighty roubles. His heart, generally so quiet, began to throb. On the first possible day he went shopping in company with Petrovich— they bought some very good cloth, and at a reasonable rate, too, for they had been considering the matter for six months, and rarely let a month pass without their visiting the shops to inquire prices. Petrovitch himself said that no better cloth could be had. For lining they selected a cotton stuff, but so firm and thick, that Petrovitch declared it to be better than silk, and even prettier and more glossy. They did not buy the marten fur, because it was, in fact, dear, but in its stead they picked out the very best of catskin, which could be found in the shop, and which might, indeed, be taken for Martin at a distance. Petrovich worked at the cloak two whole weeks, but there was a great deal of quilting, otherwise it would have been finished sooner. He charged twelve roubles for the job, it could not possibly have been done for less. It was all sewed with silk in small double seams, and Petrovich went over each seam afterwards with his own teeth. "'stamping in various patterns. "'It was, it is difficult to say precisely on what day, "'but probably the most glorious one in Akaki Akakievich's life "'when Petrovich at length brought home the cloak. "'He brought it in the morning, "'before the hour when it was necessary to start for the department. "'Never did a cloak arrive so exactly in the nick of time, "'for the severe cold had set in, "'and it seemed to threaten to increase.' Petrovitch brought the cloak himself, as befits a good tailor. On his countenance was a significant expression, such as Akaki Akakievich had never beheld there. He seemed fully sensible that he had done no small deed, and crossed a gulf separating tailors who put in linings and execute repairs, from those who make new things. He took the cloak out of the pocket-handkerchief in which he had brought it. The handkerchief was fresh from the laundress, and he put it in his pocket for use. Taking out the cloak, he gazed proudly at it, held it up with both hands, and flung it skilfully over the shoulders of Akaki Akakievich. Then he pulled it, and fitted it down behind with his hand, and he draped it around Akaki Akakievich without buttoning it. Akaki Akakievich, like an experienced man, wished to try the sleeves— Petrovitch helped him on with them, and it turned out that the sleeves were satisfactory also. In short, the cloak appeared to be perfect, and most seasonable. Petrovitch did not neglect to observe that it was only because he lived in a narrow street, and had no signboard, and had known Akaki Akievich so long, that he had made it so cheaply, but that if he had been in business on the Nevsky prospect— he would have charged seventy-five roubles for the making alone. Akaki Akakievich did not care to argue this point with Petrovich. He paid him, thanked him, and set out at once in his new cloak for the department. Petrovich followed him, and pausing in the street, gazed long at the cloak in the distance, after which he went to one side, expressly to run through a crooked alley, and emerge again into the street beyond. To gaze once more upon the cloak from another point, namely, directly in front. End of part one
2: Translator's introduction of the Inspector General by Nikolai Gogol Translated by Thomas Seltzer Introduction The Inspector General is a national institution. To place a purely literary valuation upon it, and call it the greatest of Russian comedies, would not convey the significance of its position, either in Russian literature, or in Russian life itself. There is no other single work, in the modern literature of any language, that carries with it the wealth of associations which the Inspector General does to the educated Russian. The Germans have their Faust, but Faust is a tragedy, with a cosmic philosophic theme. In England, it takes nearly all that is implied in the comprehensive name of Shakespeare to give the same sense of bigness that a Russian gets from the mention of the Revisor. That is not to say that the Russian is so defective in the critical faculty as to balance the combined creative output of the greatest English dramatist against Gogol's one comedy, or even to attribute to it the literary value of any of Shakespeare's better plays. What the Russian's appreciation indicates ...is the pregnant role that literature plays in the life of intellectual Russia. Here, literature is not a luxury, not a diversion. It is bone of the bone, flesh of the flesh, not only of the intelligentsia, but also of a growing number of the common people, intimately woven into their everyday existence, part and parcel of their thoughts, their aspirations, their social, political and economic life. It expresses their collective wrongs and sorrows their collective hopes and strivings. Not only does it serve to lead the movements of the masses, but it is an integral component element of those movements. In a word, Russian literature is completely bound up with the life of Russian society, and its vitality is but the measure of the spiritual vitality of that society. This unique character of Russian literature may be said to have had its beginning with the Inspector General. Before Gogol, Most Russian writers, with few exceptions, were but weak imitators of foreign models. The drama fashioned itself chiefly upon French patterns. The Inspector General, and later Gogol's novel Dead Souls, established that tradition in Russian letters, which was followed by all the great writers from Dostoevsky down to Gorky. As with One Blow, Gogol shattered the notions of the theatre-going public of his day, of what a comedy should be. The ordinary idea of a play at that time in Russia seems to have been a little like our own tired businessmans, And the shock the revisor gave those early 19th century Russian audiences is not unlike the shocks we ourselves get when once in a while a theatrical manager is courageous enough to produce a bold modern European play. Only the intensity of the shock was much greater, for Gogol dared not only bid defiance to the accepted method. He dared to introduce a subject matter that under the guise of humour audaciously attacked the very foundation of the state, namely the officialdom of the Russian bureaucracy. That is why the Revizor marks such a revolution in the world of Russian letters. In form it was realistic, in substance it was vital. It showed up the rottenness and corruption of the instruments through which the Russian government functioned. It held up to ridicule, directly, all the officials of a typical Russian municipality and, indirectly, pointed to the same system of graft and corruption among the very highest servants of the Crown. What wonder that the Inspector General became a sort of comedy epic in the land of the Tsars. The land where each petty town governor is almost an absolute despot, regulating his persecutions and extortions according to the sage saying of the town governor in the play. That's the way God made the world, and the Voltairian freethinkers can talk against it all they like. It won't do any good. Every subordinate in the town administration, all the way down the line to the policeman, follow, not always so scrupulously, the law laid down by the same authority. Graft no higher than your rank. As in city and town, so in village and hamlet. It is the tragedy of Russian life which has its roots in that more comprehensive tragedy russian despotism the despotism that gives the sharp edge to official corruption for there is no possible redress from it except in violent revolutions that is the prime reason why the inspector general a mere comedy has such a hold on the russian people and occupies so important a place in russian literature and that is why a russian critic says russia possesses only one comedy the inspector general the second reason is the brilliancy and originality with which this national theme was executed. Gogol was, above all else, the artist. He was not a radical, nor even a liberal. He was strictly conservative. While hating the bureaucracy, yet he never found fault with the system itself, or with the autocracy. Like most born artists, he was strongly individualistic in temperament, and his satire and ridicule were aimed not at causes, but at effects. Let but the individuals act morally, and the system, which Gogol never questioned, would work beautifully. This conception caused Gogol to concentrate his best efforts upon delineation of character. It was the characters that were to be revealed, their actions to be held up to scorn and ridicule, not the conditions which created the characters and made them act as they did. If any lesson at all was to be drawn from the play, it was not a sociological lesson, but a moral one. The individual who sees himself mirrored in it may be moved to self-purgation. Society has nothing to learn from it. Yet the play lives because of the social message it carries. The creation proved greater than the creator. The author of The revisor was a poor critic of his own work. The Russian people rejected his estimate and put their own upon it. They knew their officials and they entertained no illusions concerning their regeneration so long as the system that bred them continued to live. Nevertheless, as a keen satire and a striking exposition of the workings of the hated system itself, they hailed the Revisor with delight, and as such it has remained graven in Russia's conscience to this day. It must be said that Gogol himself grew with the writing of the Revizor, always a careful craftsman, scarcely ever satisfied with the first version of a story or a play, continually changing and rewriting he seems to have bestowed special attention on perfecting this comedy. The subject, like that of Dead Souls, was suggested to him by the poet Pushkin, and was based on a true incident. Pushkin at once recognised Gogol's genius, and looked upon the young author as the rising star of Russian literature. Their acquaintance soon ripened into intimate friendship, and Pushkin missed no opportunity to encourage and stimulate him in his writings, and help him with all the power of his great influence. Gogol began to work on the play at the close of 1834, when he was 25 years old. It was first produced in St. Petersburg in 1836. Despite the many elaborations it had undergone before Gogol permitted it to be put on the stage, he still did not feel satisfied, and he began to work on it again in 1838. It was not brought down to its present final form until 1842. Thus the Revisor occupied the mind of the author over a period of eight years, and resulted in a product which from the point of view of characterization and dramatic technique is almost flawless. Yet far more important is the fact that the play marked an epoch in Gogol's own literary development. When he began on it, his ambitions did not rise above making it a comedy of pure fun. But, gradually, in the course of his working on it, the possibilities of the subject unfolded themselves and influenced his entire subsequent career. His art broadened and deepened and grew more serious. If Pushkin's remark that behind his laughter you feel the sad tears is true of some of Gogol's former productions, it is still truer of the revisor and his later works. A new life had begun for him, he tells us himself, when he was no longer moved by childish notions but by lofty ideas full of truth. It was Pushkin, he writes, who made me look at the thing seriously. I saw that in my writings I laughed vainly, "'for nothing, myself not knowing why. "'If I was to laugh, then I had better laugh "'over things that are really to be laughed at. "'In the Inspector General, I resolved to gather together "'all the bad in Russia I then knew, into one heap, "'all the injustice that was practised in those places "'and in those human relations, in which, more than in anything, "'justice is demanded of men, and to have one big laugh over it all. "'But that, as is well known, produced an outburst of excitement.' Through my laughter, which never before came to me with such force, the reader sensed profound sorrow. I myself felt that my laughter was no longer the same as it had been, that in my writings I could no longer be the same as in the past, and that the need to divert myself with innocent, careless scenes had ended along with my young years. With the strict censorship that existed in the reign of Tsar Nicholas I, it required powerful influence to obtain permission for the production of the comedy. This Gogol received through the instrumentality of his friend Rukovsky, who succeeded in gaining the Tsar's personal intercession. Nicholas himself was present at the first production in April 1836, and laughed and applauded, and is said to have remarked, everybody gets it, and I most of all. Naturally, official Russia did not relish this innovation in dramatic art, and indignation ran high among them and their supporters. Bulgarian led the attack. Everything that is usually said against a new departure in literature or art was said against the revisor. It was not original. It was improbable, impossible, coarse, vulgar, lax plot. It turned on a stale anecdote that everybody knew. It was a rank farce. The characters were mere caricatures. What sort of a town was it that did not hold a single honest soul? Gogol's sensitive nature shrank before the tempest that burst upon him and he fled from his enemies all the way out of Russia. Do what you please about presenting the play in Moscow, he writes to Shepkin, four days after its first production in St. Petersburg. I am not going to bother about it. I am sick of the play and all the fussing over it. It produced a great noisy effect. All are against me. They abuse me and go to see it. No tickets can be obtained for the fourth performance. But the best literary talent of Russia, with Pushkin and Bielinski, the greatest critic Russia has produced, at the head, ranged itself on his side. Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol was born in Sorochintsy, government of Poltava, in 1809. His father was a little Russian, or Ukrainian, landowner, who exhibited considerable talent as a playwright and actor. Gogol was educated at home until the age of 10, then went to Nizin, where he entered the gymnasium in 1821. Here, he edited a student's manuscript magazine, called The Star, and later founded a student's theatre, for which he was both manager and actor. It achieved such success that it was patronised by the general public. In 1829, Gogol went to St. Petersburg, where he thought of becoming an actor, but he finally gave up the idea and took a position as a subordinate government clerk. His real literary career began in 1830 with the publication of a series of stories of little Russian country life called Nights on a Farm near Daikanka. In 1831, he became acquainted with Pushkin and Drukovsky, who introduced the shy Kokol – nickname for Little Russian, as he was called – to the house of Madame O. A. Smirnov, the centre of an intimate circle of literary men and the flower of intellectual society. The same year he obtained a position as instructor of history at the Patriotic Institute and in 1834 was made professor of history at the University of St. Petersburg. Though his lectures were marked by originality and vivid presentation, he seems on the whole not to have been successful as a professor, and he resigned in 1835. During this period he kept up his literary activity uninterruptedly and in 1835 published his collection of stories, Mirgorod, containing how Ivan Ivanovich quarrelled with Ivan Nikiforovich, Taras Bulba, and others. This collection firmly established his position as a leading author. At the same time, he was at work on several plays. The Vladimir Cross, which was to deal with the higher St. Petersburg functionaries in the same way as the Revisor with the Lesser Town officials, was never concluded, as Gogol realised the impossibility of placing them on the Russian stage. A few strong scenes were published. The comedy Marriage, finished in 1835, still finds a place in the Russian theatrical repertoire. The Gamblers, his only other complete comedy, belongs to a later period. After a stay abroad, chiefly in Italy, lasting with some interruptions for seven years, 1836 to 1841, he returned to his native country, bringing with him the first part of his greatest work, Dead Souls. The novel, published the following year, produced a profound impression and made Gogol's literary reputation supreme. Pushkin, who did not live to see its publication, on hearing the first chapters read exclaimed, God, how sad our Russia is! And Alexander Gyrtsen characterised it as, a wonderful book, a bitter but not hopeless rebuke of contemporary Russia. Aksakov went so far as to call it the Russian national epic, and Gogol the Russian Homer. Unfortunately, the novel remained incomplete, Gogol began to suffer from a nervous illness, which induced extreme hypochondria. He became excessively religious, fell under the influence of pietists and a fanatical priest, sank more and more into mysticism, and went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship at the Holy Sepulchre. In this state of mind, he came to consider all literature, including his own, as pernicious and sinful. After burning the manuscript of the second part of Dead Souls, he began to rewrite it, had it completed and ready for the press by 1851, but kept the copy and burned it again a few days before his death, 1852, so that it is extant only in parts. Thomas Seltzer End of Translator's Introduction